Welcome to Hudson Mohawk Magazine. This is Marsha Lazarus. I am very excited to share seven interviews with Capital Region folks doing what can only be called meaningful work. You will hear from each of these folks an excitement for their work, a personal connection to it, and a clarity about what they're doing and why it matters. We'll hear from an executive director who focuses her efforts on keeping a women's retreat center alive, started over a hundred years ago. We'll hear from a poet, visual artist, and educator who performs reenactments of women in history. Then to a man who founded and runs a financial and arts literacy organization for children whose potential is often overlooked. Then to a woman who became a rabbi when women did not enter the field. We'll hear from a public historian who brings to light in-depth stories of African-American musicians, artists, and educators. We'll hear from an independent producer and performer of ghost stories. And lastly, to an entrepreneur who started a unique culinary business. So we'll start with Doreen Kelly, Executive Director of Weawaka Center for Women. Integral to Doreen's role is keeping the mission of founder Mary Fuller alive. Let's take a listen. So Doreen, for folks that are not familiar with Weawaka, how would you describe it? So Weawaka is um, the oldest and continuously operating women's retreat in the country. We are a historic property from 1903. We were started by Katrina Trask and Mary Fuller in their vision to give working women a place to have a holiday. So we're very restorative, peaceful, unique, and serene setting. Uh, We are 20 acres on the lake frontage and 40 acres across the street. And throughout the summer months, we offer unique and relevant programming to enhance your time here at Weawaka. And many of those programs and workshops are geared toward history, women, uplifting, empowerment, and health, wellness, et cetera. There's so many things that can um, make your time here at Weawaka even more special. The times that I have been up there with friends, I would describe it as a happy place for a lot of the women that are there either for, for the day or several days. And no doubt it's, it's a lot to manage. You know, the fact that you can stay there overnight. I know there's lodging, which means, of course, maintaining buildings, places to stay. I know you have some beautiful Victorian houses in which people stay. Of course, this means preparing meals for guests and, and like you said, all kinds of programming to plan for and organize. What brought you to what I would call a very big role, big responsibility, and, and what are you most proud of? So I grew up in this area, in the Glens Falls, Queensbury area, and knew very little about Weawaka. I was asked to join the board of directors back in 2016. And as soon as I found out more about 
we at Waka and what we're all about. I fell in love with the mission and what we represent. And then with that dedication, when the director had decided to move on, I was very inspired to resign from the board and apply for the position. And I have never looked back. So this is my fifth year as director, but seven years with um, leading Weawaka into these next decades, hopefully making a mark for years and years to come. And I just, I love the fact that it's for every woman. It is not just um, exclusive, exclusive group. It's for any participant that wants to come here and enjoy a beautiful Weawaka. And um, you're right, it is a happy place. And um, I often use the word magical. What I'm hearing you say, Doreen, is what you're so proud of is being part of this mission of the organization. Yes. And helping to keep it alive and fulfilled. What are some of the challenges that you have faced that the organization has faced? So we, we are a 501c3, so we are a nonprofit. And, you know, we always are looking for um, ways to continue to restore and preserve our historic property. All of the buildings on this property are part of the National Registry of Historic Places. And there's great responsibility to maintain these buildings. We have three Victorian buildings that are here that are um, been here since 1903. And we have Lake House, which was built in the early 1960s. And that is also now on the historic registry. And then we have Wakanda, which is where we're proud to say George O'Keefe stayed back in 1908 as a young artist in um, from the New York City League of Arts students. So we have a lot of history on this property and maintaining these buildings and preserving them to their original glory um, is quite uh, undertaking. And we do try to maintain the period correctness of each building, keeping it very simple in furnishings and special to the time period. So our big challenge is really financially to get the word out about who we are. And by people coming for the day, coming for an overnight, coming for a program, and or a meal um, helps sustain us and um, hopefully have people spreading the word and coming back again. Quite a number of years ago when I ran an organization serving women looking to get back into the workplace, we were able to get a grant and we brought a group of women who never even heard of Weawaka. Most of the women lived within the city of Albany, didn't have vehicles and had limited budgets. It was such a beautiful experience. And like you say, a restorative setting, a lot of feeling of healing, happiness. That's how Weawaka started, right? Wasn't it really providing that respite vacation for women who worked in the factories in Troy? And you're right. The mission was started for working women, the immigrant girls that worked in Troy and the factories. That's part of our our mission is to make sure that we always have um, funding for women that that may not have the financial means. And where do women come from? I know when I've uh, been hanging out on the dock, I've met people from outside the area, from from the Lake George area, and from other states. 
So the women that come here are from anywhere in the Capital District and the North Country, all the way up the um, Northeastern Seaboard, all the way through to California. So our, our women are from all over the Northeast and up beyond. And we're proud of that, that, that women have found Weawaka to be a destination place to come and enjoy um, some time on Lake George, but also the beauty and the camaraderie and the, the you know, magic of Weawaka. We have a saying in the parlor when you first arrive in Fuller House that says, come as a stranger and you leave as a friend. How do you make that happen? That's beautiful. It's amazing how women that come from um, different places in life, you know, we have women that are artists or writers or quilters or knitters, or um, maybe they're here for um, a yoga class. Maybe they're here for a reunion. Maybe they're just here on their own to enjoy and uh, relax. But then we also have some women that are women veteran groups. Um, we have mom's healing groups. We have cancer survivors and everyone's just a, together and there's no um, isolation. There's no differentiation. There's everyone is a joined group of ladies that empower each other, lift up each other. Yes. Yeah, so we, we're always looking to bring awareness to Weawaka. We have such an amazing history Katrina Trask and her husband, Spencer, owned all of this beautiful property. And when Mary Fuller um, approached her, which they were both friends from the Episcopal Church in Troy, you know, her father was an industrialist himself who ran one of those factories. And I, I really believe that Mary Fuller, she wanted to find a place for these women to be able to go. And Katrina Trask and Spencer Trask deeded our property to Mary Fuller to start this mission for a dollar and a bouquet of flowers. And Mary Fuller ran Weawaka until she passed in 1963. So she really dedicated her life to making sure that Weawaka was affordable and welcoming and enjoyable for every woman. And, um, and now we're we're in our 119th season going into our 120th in 2023 and it's really quite amazing the legacy that was started with those two amazing women now we'll hear from multidisciplinary artist d collin this past june i attended pinkster fest at the schuyler mansion in albany the first performer that i met that day was d collin Let's listen as Dee Collin talks about her work inspired by the life and work of Sojourner Truth. Well, ladies and gentlemen, we just had a wonderful performance by the Pinkster Players. And so I'm standing here with the wonderful and talented poet Dee Collin. And unfortunately, I just missed her performance. Can you talk a little bit about what your performance was? I was reenacting Sojourner Truth. Um, and I've been doing reenactments of Sojourner Truth for more than five years. Um, this is the first time in three years that I've done a reenactment. So um, it's, been a, it's been a while. 
Can you talk a little bit about your motivation to be doing reenactments of Sojourner Truth, not just today, but prior to today? My reenactments of Sojourner started um, after I was in a play called The Stone That Started the Ripple. And that play was written by Patricia Nugent, uh, and we, we had it in Saratoga um, at Skidmore College. And it was the basic premise was uh, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, Susan B. Anthony, uh, Lucretia Mott, and so Sojourner Truth all come back from the dead to, you know, say how much things have changed and basically how much things have kind of stayed the same. And there's a lot of work that's left to do, and everybody who's still alive and kicking should, you know, get to work. Um, and from that play, uh, schools, organizations, um, different groups of people could book each of us individually to come in and do a reenactment. That was funded by the League of Women Voters in Saratoga. And so after after that whole play and then the reenactments, people just kept booking me for Sojourner Truth. And I continued to tell her story because, you know, she has a very powerful story. And the more I did the enactment of Sojourner Truth, the more I learned about her life and how much of her life isn't really taught. And uh, just now it just feels like um, kind of like a calling to just continue to tell her story. Can you cite one or two parts of her life or her message that you want to bring out? Um, sure. Sojourner Truth, um, she, she successfully brought white people to court and won her cases twice. Uh, she, she won a case to uh, get her son back after he was illegally sold down south, after that was uh, made illegal in New York State, and she won the case to get her son Peter back. So that's something that, like, especially for a black woman in the 1800s, um, taking white people to court, like that's not taught at all. And just the simple fact that she had the courage to, you know, go go forth and try to do that is amazing to me. Another story that's not taught is um, in Washington D.C. She was in Washington D.C. and there were whites-only uh, trolley cars, and she tried to board one. And this is this is years before um, you know Cla Claudette Colvin and Rosa Parks. Um, years before that, and yeah, so you know she was she was she was a out of this world. She was pretty incredible. Do you have a sense, you know, having, sounds like almost chattel, so sure to truth, do you have a sense of what gave her the courage? She was very much propelled by her belief in God. Even her name comes from her spiritual life. She believed that, that God had her back, and um, because she believed God had her back, she, that she would journey out into the world and she would tell the truth. Now let's listen to an interview with James Mitchell, founder of a wonderful organization in Albany, Young Futures. I first heard about James Mitchell's work from community leader Dequetta Jones. What I learned was the mission of Young Futures clearly reflects the founder's core values and personal mission. But I like to tell people all the time, it was a child that inspired or planted the seed to create the financial literacy art class, because after doing a program with, you know, his group, and they were a group of 30 children, age ranging between 
um, 8 and 13, he saw that we were using household products to create soaps. And he asked me if he could duplicate these uh, activities and do them on his own in his neighborhood. Um, it was around Mother's Day, right? And that let me know that at this moment, he's thinking about how he can make money for himself, how he can make money for his family. So and very much so, these activities inspire entrepreneurial spirits because they are, a lot of times children already have them. They just don't have the language to, to guide and to make themselves feel confident in what they're doing already. I would describe you as a social entrepreneur. I always tell people, you can give me any title you want, but I was given the title of a servant. Um, so I'm blessed that I have been able to found this organization and facilitate the programs that we do. So now I can channel how I serve. I'm allowed to channel how I provide that service and, and provide the service to a very targeted demographic, you know, young men and women of the African-American community or of the underserved community. Uh, we know it's typically left out of the, the, the pie, right? You know, there's programming, you know, for everyone. But when it comes to this age group, you know, outside of your after-school programming, there's not much for them to get their creativities flowing, get their questions or their desires answered, or really just to share. So, so yeah, so this, I would very much consider myself a social entrepreneur. Is this a full-time enterprise for you, running the organization? Yes, I am, you know, still learning how to be a business owner, um, but this is a full-time gig for me. So, you know, this is where I give most of my energy, learning how to, to one, like I said, facilitate programming, learning how to make the program more impactful, right? Um, I love the fact that I give the chance to work with children, um, but also their parents. Right. And, and, and having them receive the information because we do send stuff home for the parents to do to have these kind of conversations with their child. Any particular challenges or one of the most difficult things about keeping the organization not just alive, but thriving? Well, I think the challenge and it's the challenge and the sense of growth, right? Because I believe in every seed for, for failure. Um, is a is a, an opportunity for growth, right? So I'm 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 extremely I'm an extreme optimist, if you will. Um, so with that being said, um, yes, there are challenges, right? Just understanding how to one re receive funding, right? Um, how to you know we have this great program, um, but a lot of times the individuals who want to support us are also not in a position to support us. Right. So understanding how do we go about getting grant opportunities? I'm blessed because we do have some sponsorships that allows us to continue programming. Uh, we also do some fundraising as well. Uh, one of them in particular is the art and soul competition. Right. As I mentioned, how we let the children design white sneakers. We have a competition every year where we bring in 20 artists um, and we give them a pair of white van sneakers and they design those sneakers. I mean, and at the end of that competition, we auction the sneakers off. Some of the proceeds going to the artists, some of the proceeds coming back to the youth programming here. Is there something specific that inspired you to get this organization started and keep it running? Because I'm sure it is not easy. Yes. Well, for me, it was a lot of my childhood experiences, right? 
growing up in the area where I did not have and seeing other people with, right? And for initially, when I first started Young Futures, it was a program where we just wanted to give children some opportunities to create and, and really express themselves in a way where you're not necessarily using all of your words. You're using your imagination. You're using your, you know, feelings. And from, from doing those courses and, and facilitating those classes, I realized, as I said, working with these children who, who asked me to, to create space for them to become entrepreneurs, I saw a need to create new, new type of art programming. So for me, it was really the community that inspired me. You know, my upbringing and growing up in, in Bronx, Bronx River Projects, right? Seeing, seeing that community for what it was, but also seeing the, the, the roses in that community with limited resources really helped me to believe this was possible. Um, and still to this day, the community helps me keep it, you know, keep continuing to inspire me so I can continue to do this work. Is there anything else you want to say, James, about what keeps you plugging away? sometimes I'll get so much caught up in the work that I don't realize how much of an impact the work has on people. Um, but we do these things after each class where we bring the children in, um, maybe about a month after they've taken a class to see what they've received. And when they go into, you know, the lesson and they regurgitate or they remix it and relate it to something else that they do in their own personal lives, back to the concept of budgeting, back to the concept of building equity. It those, in those moments, you know, I feel the proudest because I see that the work echoes in their lives, not just in that classroom or not just in that week, but beyond that week, beyond that, that, that month. Um, and that lets me know that these are things that they're going to go out and keep with themselves as they get older and teach to their peers as they connect with other people that may be interested in this information. Next, we'll hear from Rabbi Linda Motzkin. Rabbi Linda Motzkin has clearly not heeded gender-limiting expectations. I reached out to Rabbi Motzkin after learning about her solo art exhibit at the Spring Street Gallery in Saratoga from Hudson Mohawk producer and programming coordinator Sina Bazilla Hickey. Let's take a listen as Rabbi Moskin talks about some very unique ways that she has expressed her passions and talents. You know, I happen to be the daughter of a woman who went to medical school and became a physician in the 1950s. And so my mother was a very powerful role model for me that a woman can have a career and have a family. And I think in some ways, going to rabbinical school in the 1980s felt a little bit like I was walking in my mother's footsteps, entering a tradition, you know, entering a profession that women traditionally hadn't entered, but with the confidence that a woman can do anything she sets her mind to do. Welcome to Hudson Mohawk Magazine. This is Marsha Lazarus, and I'm sitting with Rabbi Linda Motzkin. Rabbi Linda and her husband, Rabbi Jonathan Rubenstein, have served as co-rabbis at Temple Sinai in downtown Saratoga Springs since 1986. Wow, 
over 35 years. Yes, 36 and a half. Congratulations. It's been a wonderful, wonderful 36 and a half years. So was becoming a rabbi a dream that you had as a young person? When I was young, it was, I would have no sooner thought of becoming a rabbi than I would have thought of sprouting wings and flying to the moon. When I was young, there was no such thing as a woman rabbi. And there were only men leading communities. So it never entered my mind as a, as a young girl, as a possible career option for me. It wasn't until I was in college. Uh, I studied as an undergrad at UC Berkeley in California. I did my junior year abroad at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. And it was there when I was a college student that I first met young women only a few years older than myself that were studying to be rabbis. And that was when the whole idea of becoming a rabbi even first entered my head as a possible profession to pursue. It just until that point was completely not on my radar, but I was there studying for a year in Jerusalem because I was interested in exploring my Jewish identity, my Jewish heritage. I wasn't particularly religious at that point, but um, meeting young women who were studying to be rabbis made me think, huh, that's a, that's an interesting choice of a career and something perhaps might suit me. Rabbi Linda, I understand that in addition to being a rabbi, you are also a Torah scribe, an author, a parchment maker, and an artist. I've been an artist um, as a sidelong passion, never as a career option for my entire life. I've always had an artistic bent. Uh, I became an author of uh, Hebrew language textbooks before I became a rabbi. I worked for a Hebrew uh, curriculum materials publishing company and in that context authored the first Hebrew language textbook that I wrote and then on the basis of that wrote others after becoming a rabbi. But So the artist and, and author preceded becoming a rabbi, um, but the becoming a Torah scribe and Parchment maker definitely were roles that I took on in the context of being rabbi at Temple Sinai in Saratoga Springs. I happened to make the acquaintance of a scribe who introduced me to his teacher, who became my teacher. It was sort of an outgrowth of my own artistic inclinations to get into studying traditional Jewish scribal arts. Uh, but doing it had the support um, and encouragement of members of my congregation. It also felt again like venturing into a realm that wasn't traditionally a female realm. Up until the 21st century, there were no Torah scrolls known to history to have been written by a woman. Doesn't mean there necessarily weren't any, but none that were acknowledged and known in history to have been written by women. And laws that had developed within Jewish tradition to prohibit women from being among those who could write Torah scrolls. So it was a very, if becoming a rabbi as a woman was a new thing, becoming a Torah scribe as a woman was even more so a new thing. And um, I became a parchment maker in part 
because I needed to have a means of acquiring materials for doing this work since all the scribal supply shops that produced these materials and sold these materials uh, were not at the time when I was beginning to study oriented toward women scribes or selling to women scribes. So I had to come up with my own way of accessing my materials. And that's how I got into parchment making. And when you talk about scribe, are you talking about a form of calligraphy? Writing a Torah scroll is slightly, is different. It's actually, in my mind, be the scribe and being a Hebrew calligraphic artist are two separate things. Being a Torah scribe is being part of a centuries old tradition that has its own laws. And, you know, not everybody, even if they're a beautiful calligrapher, can pick up a quill and write a Torah scroll. There's all sorts of um, rules about the way in which it has to be written and the materials one uses and the process uh, as it unfolds. And it's something that one has to learn. I had the good fortune of meeting a traditional Orthodox rabbi who was a traditionally trained scribe in 2003 who agreed to take me on as his student or else I wouldn't be able to be writing a Torah scroll. I would be able to do Hebrew calligraphy. I'd be able to do Hebrew art, but I wouldn't be able to write a Torah scroll without having the special training and learning that goes with that. That is because the Torah is a holy set of books. Is, is that where the rules and the prescriptions come in? It's not just any old book that somebody picks up. Yes, a Torah scroll is the most sacred ritual object in the Jewish religion. And Torah scrolls today are written the same way they were in antiquity. They're handwritten by a scribe um, using uh, on parchment, which is not paper. It's made from animal skins. For a Torah, it has to be the skin of a kosher animal. And um, they're not mass produced. They're not made on printing presses. In antiquity, a scribe would have written with a reed like papyrus or bamboo. Now scribes write with feathers. But other than that, we're pretty much doing the same thing that was done 2,000 years ago. In what ways does the role of rabbi resonate most within you, with who you are? I think I would say that the role of rabbi has uh, enabled me to be the best version of myself and has represented the best aspects of who I am. Because as rabbi, that's what I'm called upon to be. And so I'm grateful to my Temple Sinai community for 36 years of enabling me to be their rabbi and together with my husband serve in this role in which I could be the best version of myself. For those just tuning in, you're listening to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. This program comes from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York. We'll now hear from Lacey Wilson, public historian for the African American History Project at the Albany Institute of History and Art. Lacey is a graduate of the Museum Studies Master's Program at University of North Carolina in Greensboro and a previous historic interpreter at the Owens Thomas House 
and slave quarters. Let's take a listen as Lacey talks about her work at the museum and what motivates her. It must feel so rewarding to be able to uncover other voices, in particular voices from the African-American community. It, it feels very rewarding, but it also does feel sometimes, uh, I don't think, I, I, I uncovers a word that I wouldn't even say sometimes, because I think a lot of these are stories that people in the black community of Albany knew already, and it had been told in community there, and it's just not being shown in other larger institutions sometimes, or it's just in conversation, not considered real history by some folk. So I think, well, uh, I, I think I'm just excited to like be able to get more attention on those people and give and give the, give that shine to them in that same say in that same way. Marsha Lazarus sitting here at the Albany Institute for History and Art with public historian Lacey Wilson. It's a delight to be here with you one on one, and I really enjoyed the roundtable discussion that you facilitated at the Convergence Summit. I was impressed with your ability to get the panelists to share so openly about their work and what drives them in continuing to do their work with such passion. I'm going to turn the tables. What drew you to becoming a public historian? So I am from the D.C. metropolitan area. I grew up in Silver Spring, Maryland, but I was born in Washington, D.C. And I think the proximity to Smithsonian museums that are free and that you can wander into essentially whenever you want was very helpful. I always was drawn to history because I really like stories. Um, and I realized at a young age that history was basically just stories with a lot of perspectives and consequences that we were still feeling. And the more I looked at it with that perspective and wanting to get involved with like local and community history, that's where I found myself drawn further and further toward public history. Tell us what brought you to the Albany Institute. I applied and received a job. I'm the public historian of the Albany African American History Project here at the Albany Institute of History and Art. It's a very long title. Um, but it, um, so my focus is the 20th and 21st century black history within Albany city limits. So I've been doing research on jazz and musical performance and advocacy and gentrification and urban renewal and trying to get myself into as many conversations with locals to find out what they're interested in, what stories about black history in those two centuries they think needs need more nuance, needs an additional retelling, needs these other voices in there. It's a lot of outreach on my part, as well as additional research here at the Institute with our artifacts, as well as connecting with other institutions. I've been at University of Albany's archives several times. Their special collections is very nice. Um, and I'm hoping to continue to connect more with the State History Museum and State Archives and just figure out like what the, one of the end results is an exhibit. But I'm also trying to get myself involved in educational programming and a lot of outreach to just further figure out what stories we need to expand upon here at the Institute. It sounds like public history entails many different facets. Mm -hmm. Is there a particular piece that's more exciting than others? I think what's exciting to me about the position is just seeing where the progress is going and trying to figure out where it'll actually end up. I 
uh, described a lot of my earlier months here as being an erratic time traveler, just trying just jumping to whatever seemed interesting at the time. But I think in more recent months, a lot of things have started to take shape. So I was able, have been able to be more selective about like people I then need to talk to, organizations I need to further connect with. Um, I like connecting with organizations and folks because I like getting people excited about this work and these stories and being able to find interesting ways to bring those stories, to, to further center those stories here at the Institute and in our educational programming and all, all sorts of things. I think being the, the, the journey itself is fun. I'm, I'm gonna, I enjoy the journey. I think it's probably the real answer to that question. But each facet is important, like being able to connect with folks, be able to do research, be able to um, go to events and things and connect with people at like the summit um, this past weekend um, with the Albany Symphony Orchestra. My understanding is you connected with the panelists at the Black Expo. Yes, two of the panelists I knew, I, I met through the Black Expo with their organizer, Tatiana Cunningham. And then uh, Carla Page, I had met at Mississippi Day the weekend before. Um, I went up to her because I had was in the process of bringing a um, artifact, a picture of her from her, her early days in the 70s, being involved in the Black Arts and Cultural Festival here at the Empire Plaza, I believe. Uh, I had brought that picture, and intending to bring that picture to our collections, and I saw her at Mississippi Day, and I went up to her to tell her that that's something I was doing, and I wanted her on this panel. <laughs> so you're not shy. I don't. Th I think if I think the mission of the project makes means that I don't have to be as shy. In order to get the right stories and to really get community buy-in, I have to be able to go up to people and introduce myself and tell them about the project and explain to them why I want them involved. And why is this so important? I think it's important because it's um, a part of Albany history. I don't think we interact with nearly as much. Um, once I got here and I started having conversations with folks, they were, eased, they were very excited to tell me about the brothers, the Johnson brothers and Bob Cole. And, and, uh, and I, think we, I think there's a lot more to the stories, to the brothers, as well as to those years and those centuries that we can dive more into. I think it's important to center black history, in particular with this project, because I think it's um, an under-recognized portion of Albany's history and of America's history. And the more we study it and the more we having these conversations, the more we can further do more in terms of policy, in terms of being able to see where we came from and further highlight the folks who did a lot of really good work early on. Lacey, I was intrigued. I read through some of your research online. You give a very specific comparison mm -hmm. between the reporting of the Albany Argus, white-owned mm -hmm. newspaper, with, with the Freeman, which was a black-owned newspaper. Yeah, so that was um, the, uh, the Freeman did essentially a, not a full-page spread, but like a very in-depth profile about this upcoming operette that Bob Cole and the Johnson brothers, I believe it was both of them still, um, were getting ready to tour. And it was really in depth with like the people they were having on and their thought process in putting this opera together and where they'd be touring. It was, it was a profile focused on them and really their artist statements as they're going forward and creating this art and trying to bring it to folks who want to see it. 
Um, and one of the places that they toured it was Albany. And so when I was looking for evidence in Albany newspapers of these of this upcoming performance, I think I'd first found it in Albany newspapers before I found this article in the Freeman. Um, it was not, I don't want to call it a blip, but it was just an advertisement about this upcoming show. They didn't dive into the fact that many sources call this the first black opera in the United States. Um, they, the, both the, um, all three of these men had toured up in Albany before in previous projects, but this was going to be the first one that they had done all together. And it was really just an upcoming show uh, advertisement. Um, as compared to a full page spread, not a full page. It was a good amount of, it was a full profile. It reminds me of your approach um, at the roundtable discussion mm -hmm. and how you, or I believe you said, I, I want our panelists to truly share their stories. Mm -hmm. If we were just looking at Albany newspapers, would we know about these very specific, like intentional artist statements coming about the Shufly Regiment, which is the name of the opera? Or will we just know that a, a black show was coming to town? Um, in the same way with facilitating a panel, I, I think it's just a, um, a lot of it is just like um, for me and my thought process in facilitating that panel is I it was just that I want to be able to focus on the panelists. Um, that's what we're here. We're here to listen to the panelists and talk about them and their role in Albany and black performance. Just being able to like hear the different ways they're coming at it. Um, and, and just give them time to shine further. Um, and I always re and I re remember this in the field as well. When I go to a historic site and I just hear all of one kind of story, I don't hear the breadth of experiences at certain places. It sticks out to me, and I have to remind myself that actually not all places do want to hear about uh, want to hear from so many different perspectives like I do and my colleagues are interested in hearing from. Now to the world of storytelling. This past Halloween, I attended an evening of ghost stories at the East Step Coffee House at Proctor's in Schenectady. Let's take a listen to producer of Whispering Bones, Kelvin Correga, perform and talk about his work. Well, hello, everybody. And for those of you who've been reincarnated, hello again. Well, you all look wonderful tonight. You know, you would make a perfect deli tray for the coming zombie apocalypse. <laughs> uh, allow me to introduce myself. I've been a resident of these environments for the last 170 years. Many of them spent among the living, just like all of you. Well, some of you, anyway. <laughs> During my time on Earth, I served as a physician and an undertaker. Now, in the afterlife, I'm the purveyor of a fine line of dead people products, including, of course, Dr. Better Off Underhill's cream dement embalming fluid. It's a spirited medley of herbs, spices, sarsaparilla, absinthe, a tiny touch of Johnny Walker red, and, of course, formaldehyde. Once you drink it, you won't drink anything else. I'm standing here with Kelvin Correga, who is the Whispering Bones producer. What a wonderful, wonderful show. Thank you very much. Have you been doing this for a long time, creating these ghost story shows? Yeah, this is, um, I think, the 12th year that we've done it. We've been doing it, um, um, initially I did it at just one venue, Hubbard Hall, in, in Cambridge, but over time we started exploring the idea of bringing it around to different places, and so 
Yeah, it's been a, it's been fun. It's like I've got this huge collection of ghost stories, and every year I look for things that um, feel like they work well together, and stories that have something to say, and you know, find things ways to put together even some comedy. So it's been an awful lot of fun. What a what a diverse group of performers. So so, what is it about ghost stories that intrigues you? You know, that's a great question, and I've thought about that because, you know, I started reading ghost stories when I was a kid, and my brother and I would lie in this big old iron bed in the attic room and under a quilt and read to each other and get very creeped out. And it's like, why do we do that? And, and I think the reason is because, at least for children, we, um, we're taught when we're very young that mommy's going to take care of us and everything's going to be fine, and we watch Disney movies and all those things. but. In life, there are things out there and that kill people, that hurt people. And I think somehow for people, it's a kind of a release to acknowledge that there are these forces in the world. I think it's a great thing for kids to be given the sense of what you get in a ghost story, of the horrors out there that are there. It's not, I don't see it as harm, harmful as much as part of our growing up to acknowledge our relationship with death. So we'll end with an excerpt from an interview with personal chef and founder of Eight Count Kitchen, Germaine Wright. While Germaine has earned two degrees in the communications field, we'll hear where Germaine's culinary passion and talent and entrepreneurial spirit have taken him. Look, I think the same way that, I mean, we're just past Halloween town, but in a, in a lot of Halloween movies or witch movies, there's like the natural witches and then the witches who are taught witchcraft. And I want to say like, if it came to cooking, I'm like a natural witch. <laughs> so 
Uh, uh, yeah, I guess we can call it a calling. Welcome to Hudson Mohawk Magazine. I'm Marsha Lazarus, sitting with personal chef and owner of E-Count Kitchen, Jermaine Wright. So can you talk a little bit about your business model? It's not a physical restaurant yet, right? right? Mm -hmm. So E-Count Kitchen is a personal and private chef, uh, company, brand, et cetera. Um, you know, the whole goal is to just make the job easier of the client. You know, sometimes when we're hosting events, when we're hosting something special, there's so much stress and planning and prepping and decorating and uh, inviting guests and making sure that the house is clean and all of these things. And then to have to go on top of that and cook, that's a whole nother process. So my goal is really to just make the client um, stress-free. So, you know, I often say just invite your guests and we'll do the rest. And that's really it. And the whole goal about that is, you know, I prepare meals. It could be family family style, buffet style, or my personal favorite, which is nice and intimate, uh, which is uh, individually plated. We can do anywhere from one course to 10 if you want it to, depending on the amount in the crowd. And again, the whole goal is to just prepare delicious meals, take some of the stress off of the client and have their palate remember me forever. And I always say like, who cares about a business card? My plate is the business card. You know, me cooking and you eating my food does the work for me. And I've, I've crowned myself self-proclaimed, <laughs> self-proclaimed king of the 95% empty plate rate because 95% of the plates that come back are completely cleaned. Um, and I'm proud of that. Everybody can relate to that one. Right? <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and, you know, whether you're a restaurant chef, personal or private chef, or a home cook, everybody likes when people enjoy their food. So when the plates come back empty, it's really a beautiful thing. And then in, in addition to services, so we have the in-person um, or on-site personal chef services. In addition to that, I also teach culinary classes and cooking classes. So that's to, to be booked as well. It comes with some glasses of wine, depending on the amount of people, et cetera. And then outside of that, I also kind of work with some restaurants locally to do pop-ups to where literally I become the chef uh, for the day or the two days or the week, or depending on how we're doing this. And then also in addition to that, we have our residencies. So for personal and private chef, private chef usually means you belong to a specific family or a specific client for a contracted amount of time. And a personal chef is more like, hey, it's a one day event kind of thing. So I've had times where I've lived with families for about seven days, um, lived on premises and was responsible for preparing breakfast, lunch and dinner on the clock on the hour um, and having very little time to do anything because between cooking and cleaning for a family of 14 <laughs> is a lot of work. So, you know, it, there's this multi multiple levels to the business. And to your point, um, the marketing hat definitely comes on. It makes it very easy to um, sell myself, sell the business. And it really is, you know, people usually, they, they buy you. The rest does itself. And I, and I hope that my energy, I say that energy introduces yourself before you even open your, your, your mouth. So I hope that my energy continues to radiate positivity and positively, um, just like the sunflowers on my shirt. So, Would you say that you have a particular type of cuisine that you feel like are expertise of yours or that you especially 
enjoy creating? Absolutely. So I think the interesting question for me, my culinary philosophy, if you will, is abstract twist on traditional classics. So I take the things that you don't usually like and I make you love them. Or I take the things that you like and make you love them 10 times more. You know, <laughs> And that really gives me my flexibility to really um, make things my way. And it, it leaves room for that. When it comes to the NOLA thing, for example, I, I take plating very seriously. I think that we eat with our eyes first. Things have to look good before they taste good in order for us to even get to being able to try it or care to try it. So it was interesting because when I did it at the NOLA night, that specific restaurant, which was Lofi, had mentioned that they wanted easy handheld bar type foods. So my brain had trouble because I said, I'm not really a quick fry something and give it to you chef. So how am I going to do this? But then I realized that if I really just dig down into who I am, my roots, my family roots, ancestry, and just think about all the ways we can kind of elevate um, New Orleans, Louisiana street food, then let's do it. So I created a menu for NOLA street food, which was, for example, one of the things that you may or may not really find in NOLA is you'll always, not I won't say always, but well, I'll say always, you'll always find mac and cheese. Um, and it's likely you'll find crawfish mac and cheese. It's unlikely you'll find fried crawfish mac and cheese topped with a Cajun fondue and butter poached crawfish, you know, with Creole seeds, you know, et cetera. So that was one of the top sellers. And um, a lot of people, I was so happy and proud because a lot of people said that the food was much better and way better than the food they actually had in NOLA, which meant a lot to me because at that time I haven't even been. I had only, it's just that it's in my, it's in my blood and it's in my roots and it's what I've grown up. It's what I grew up eating. But then obviously shortly after about a week, no, about two and a half weeks or so, I was on a plane out there with my mom surprising her for a trip. So it was just a beautiful thing. But um, yeah, definitely the, the menu was delicious. We had a seafood gumbo, which had andouille sausage and rice and all the works, crab, everything that you find in traditional gumbo. We had, like I said, the fried mac and cheese, with crawfish and the fond Creole Cajun fondue. Uh, we also had a brioche um, bourbon street, bourbon style bread pudding with a bourbon whiskey glaze. And then we also had, what am I missing and forgetting? Oh, we had shrimp po' boys, which is a uh, Cajun classic in NOLA, the classic sandwich. And it was just delicious. And um, it was a great experience. And I was I was really blown away by people's response and receptiveness to the food and the style of food. And um, I, I, I can't wait to do it again. If you were going to be talking to maybe a group of young aspiring entrepreneurs, and you wanted to alert them to a challenge that you faced is there any particular advice you would share? Yeah, absolutely. I think to any young person who's aspiring to do anything, it doesn't even have to be in culinary, it's literally the only person stopping you is you. I promise you that. I tell everybody to, uh, the way I look at anxiety is just, it's, it's this idea that you're walking, you have your eyes closed and you're imagining yourself in this long, creepy hallway. And at the far end of the hallway is a door. And as you walk closer and closer to the door, you hear bears behind gnawing and scratching at the door. And as you get closer, it sounds like two. And then you start hearing growling just to open the door and realize one of two things. One, there's no bear at all. It was only your brain. Or two, there is a bear, but it's a cute, cuddly bear that just wants to be pet and groomed. So my advice would be that the only person really standing in the way is us. And um, there's so much more on the other side of fear. There's so much more waiting for you on the other side of fear. And do the work and don't be afraid. And, um, you know, I used to tell myself, 
every time something positive happened to me, when I got Food Network, when I got Remy Martin, when I got anything else in my in my career, I used to say, why is this happening to me? I'm just a little black boy from Queens. And even stepping outside of that and empowering yourself and saying, of course, this is happening to me. Like, look at all the work I do and look at the things, the energy I put out and look at, you know, the kindness I, I give to people, the universe and everything else. Why, why wouldn't this? Why shouldn't this happen when you put in the work? So I would say have confidence, keep going, realize that the only person who can stop you is you and that there's so much more on the opposite side of there. That was personal chef and owner of Eight Town Kitchen, Jermaine Wright. And that's our show. We hope you've enjoyed this special episode of the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. I'm Marsha Lazarus. This program comes from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York, on the unceded homelands of the Mohegan people who are known today as the Stockbridge-Munsee community. Thank you.